This week on Emerge Mobile First, a conversation with Rick Stolmeyer, CEO and co-founder at MindBody. The culture and core values of MindBody are central to everything we do. And our core values matter greatly to us. They mirror the, the personality of the wellness industry that we serve. And they're our guiding light. Welcome to Mobile First. You'll find bonus tools, expanded information, and key takeaways on our website, EmergeMobileFirst.com. For a quick and effective way to level up your mobile strategy, again, that's EmergeMobileFirst.com. So our guest this week, Rick, co-founded MindBody in his garage in 2001, and today serves as the company's CEO and principal visionary. MindBody is the leading provider of business management software for the wellness services industry, and this forms the cornerstone of the company's vision, leveraging technology to improve the wellness of the world. MindBody has also created an online marketplace connecting health, wellness, and beauty professionals to millions of wellness seekers worldwide. Today, MindBody powers over 60,000 wellness businesses in over 130 countries, and connects over 329,000 wellness practitioners to millions of people worldwide who are seeking healthier, happier lives. So Rick, thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So I like to start out by digging into a little bit of who you are to give us some context for what we're about to talk about. So Rick, what are you most passionate about and why? I'm passionate about helping people realize their highest selves, helping them realize their dreams and to live healthy, happy, and productive lives. Awesome. And I'm really excited to dig into MindBody and really understand what that inception story is. I myself use the app. So Rick, can you start off by telling us a little bit about how MindBody got started? Great. Well, I first became aware of this opportunity, really this industry in 1998, when my future co-founder, Blake Beltram, who was a close friend from, from high school days, showed me this PC-based application that he had written to help yoga and Pilates and spinning studios operate. At the time, I had a completely different career. And my first question was, yoga is a business? <laughs> and I did not know how to pronounce pilots. So he explained to me that there was something really exciting and disruptive going on in the fitness industry whereby the previous model of very large big box health clubs who sign up thousands of people for memberships and hope most of them don't come very often because they don't have enough Stairmasters and ellipticals for everyone, that that model was being disrupted by this boutique fitness model, which was much more high touch and much more impactful. So I was a, a, a engineering program manager at the time, and so I started taking paid time off and calling on these businesses in L.A. and San Francisco, like our, our location sounds, this was halfway between the two big metropolises. And what I saw just, I fell in love with these people. I saw people leaving the relative safety of a job, borrowing money against their home, borrowing money from friends and family, maybe cashing in 401k money for happier lives. So I saw this confluence of grassroots entrepreneurialism and purpose-driven people. Mm. And it just lit me up. 
And my background is in the military. I was a naval officer. I went to the U.S. Naval Academy. And, and the connection there is that when you choose to volunteer for the military, you are doing so because you have a sense of purpose greater than yourself. I mean, generally, why else would anybody put themselves in harm's way for a mediocre salary? <laughs> right. Incredibly uh, difficult hours and a lot of hardship, except that you're doing something that really matters. And so when I served on a nuclear submarine in the early 90s, um, we were protecting the free world. I mean, that really mattered to me. So what I found then in the late 90s, after several years of being in the corporate world, was a different kind of purpose, but a purpose nevertheless. And we felt that if we could do something to help these business owners, first of all, be more sustainable, to help them achieve their goals and their dreams, and at the same time, broaden their impact on their local communities, bring more people in, then boy, that would really be worthwhile. And it started with the concept of a fitness portal where people would go to find everything they can, they can learn about fitness and wellness. And they could learn about the teachers and trainers and therapists in their neighborhood and book up classes or appointments with them. And we realized that to really accomplish that, we were going to have to solve the fundamental business problems that they had. So that led us into building our business management software. And the original software was PC-based. Mm-hmm. It was written in Visual Basic with a Microsoft Access backend because we had to do something that was really light and affordable. You know, we couldn't build it on an Oracle database because these people couldn't afford the licenses for Oracle databases. And they certainly couldn't afford to hire the Oracle DBAs to manage it. So we uh, built it on that, and our first two big innovations were that we could use Replication Manager, which is a Microsoft technology, to synchronize the databases via the Internet of a multi-location chain. So you'd have the regional uh, chain that has an uptown location, a downtown location, an east side, and a west side. And we could get all of their data synced up so that they could have their schedules, their payroll, their staff, their sales, their payment processing, all reporting into one system. Mm. And then the second big innovation, which we rolled out in 2003, was a, an HTML web scheduling uh, system that linked up. And we literally called it Web Scheduler. Well, this was quite a hit. I mean, we had people calling us from Hong Kong and Sydney and London and Berlin when we were still in the garage that wanted this. And it was several thousand dollars startup cost to the customer. And we realized that, wow, we have a hit. And then not too long after that, we realized, you know, oh, crap, this technology isn't going to scale. I mean, it started falling apart. Mm. We were like the Dutch boys with our fingers in the dike. We, we would, we'd be remoting into customer computers in the middle of the night to download a fresh copy of the replicated database, doing a pen query against the corrupted database, and then resync it all before they open their, their doors at 6 a.m. So we were literally faking it with service to try to keep everything running. And so we reached, we reached a critical point and by early 2004 where I realized that this wasn't going to scale, that we needed to go to an enterprise-level system. The obvious data voice of choice at that time was SQL Server. We could have also have chosen MySQL. That was the other choice. Mm-hmm. But either one was a radical shift in the database. And 
it started dawning on me that if we could just take all the desktop software functionality and put that into the web scheduler, then we could cut the umbilical cord to those desktops and that we could have the business owners and their staff and their customers all interfacing in one real-time database and have no data synchronization at all. So I asked our uh, head of product development, Chet Brandenburg, in the summer of 04. I said, can you do that? And he said, yes. I think that was the extent of the product spec. Just <laughs> replicate everything the desktop software can do. And, and while you're at it, can you make it better? <laughs> and yes. I had a few things that I wanted to do, and he ended up, over the course of about six months, just intense, singular effort, we pulled it off. We trialed the first version of what we called MindBody Online in January of 2005. And I was down at YogaWorks. That's one of our largest customers at the time in, in Los Angeles, in Santa Monica. And I watched them checking in customers into the classes. And they, they can check 70 people into a class in five minutes. And I watched them using our software through a web browser. And it was going faster to go through the web browser, back to the servers that we had in our office, and then back again 300 miles away, then to the, the data server that was underneath their desk, in other words, in the previous software. Yeah. And, I, and I thought, oh, my God, this is going to work. And so we released it in February of 2005. We went from selling about 50 licenses a month for an average of about $2,500 each, which was a nice little business, yeah. to selling about 150 subscriptions a month at an average monthly subscription fee at the time of $65 a month. And so the business is taking off. We have something that no one else has. And we realize that we're about to go broke. <laughs> we just went from a bootstrap company that had been effectively cash flow positive, even during all the times I had to hold paychecks and amount paychecks, I mean, and go hit up my parents for another loan to being a uh, much more valuable model that needed significant cash infusions. And so as CEO at MindBody, you know, what are some of the things you're currently focusing on? Well, first and foremost, the culture and core values in MindBody are central to everything we do. And our core values matter greatly to us. They mirror the, the personality of the wellness industry that we serve. And they're our guiding light on everything we do. And so I spend a great deal of my time thinking about and acting on how we, we keep that fresh and keep that relevant in the business while we're in the process of growing rapidly. Mm -hmm. And a business is growing this fast. And, you know, we've effectively doubled the company every two years for the last 15 years on average, that it's not easy because right. we're, we're continuously evolving. Our, our seventh core value is continuously evolving. And that ties to that. And then the second is just understanding what's going on in the industries that we serve and in technology and in consumer habits and imagining where we're going with the product. What do we need to bring to market to meet the most important needs? And, uh, you know, in the Wayne Gretzky quote, to skate where the puck will be. <laughs> so I guess, can you maybe give us some examples of what that looks like? what a day in the life looks like with all those things you described with a company that's growing that fast for all the things you have to have purview over, you know, how, how do you do that? Well, as you become more senior in, in leadership positions, your job becomes less and less about your own production 
your own individual work and more and more about the people that you lead. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of my day is spent in direct leadership, either with individuals or different teams in the company. And communication. Uh, People need to hear the why behind what we're doing. And one of the first things that I a leader needs to get over is the thought that you could just tell them once and they'll get it. You need to be willing to and able to talk about it over and over and over again and talk about it in a way that each time you do, you're adding more color and more depth to the picture. So with a company that's doubling every two years, which is crazy, you know, what is the biggest hurdle that's currently preventing you from scaling beyond that and really, you know, which is already a crazy growth rate growing faster? The most significant gate on our growth or limiter on our growth is our ability to deliver an exceptional customer experience to every new business owner who adopts our platform. These small business owners in the industries that we serve are entrusting us with their livelihood and they have an enormous amount of personal risk. They probably have a significant amount, if not all of their entire net worth wrapped up in this business. And when we take them on as a customer, we're entering into a sacred trust. And so, as you can imagine through the years, because we've been, we were funded by venture capital before we went public, I was asked that similar question many, many times. Well, if we just put more money in, could you just grow faster? Why can't you double it every year? And the answer is because these are businesses. You know, we've we've got 60,000 businesses running on our software. That is a sacred trust. We first and foremost must do no harm. And secondly, we must deliver real value to these people. So that's what gates it. We're doing a number of things that improve the usability of the software. They make it easier to sell, to onboard, to train. These business owners typically have a lot of part-time employees. Their employees turn over a lot. So they're kind of continuously teaching their staff how to use it. So making it easier to use is an obvious goal. It's a lot easier said than than done. And it's a big part of our product development. Extending everything to mobile applications. Now the majority of the interfaces of the, the daily interaction with our platform, with the business owners, their staff, the consumers who use our various apps, is now through mobile devices. And five years ago, we had no mobile device capability. So... Keeping up with those technological changes and continuously making it simpler and more enjoyable to use is a paramount goal. Can you maybe explain what that transition was like over this last five-year period from going to mobile and some of those hurdles that you faced in doing that? It was huge. And what everyone probably imagines is the challenge is that, well, you have to, first of all, develop capacity to build native mobile apps, and that's the iOS and Android uh, operating systems. That's the easiest part. The hard part is that when, you're, when you have a system that is a giant set of databases powering multiple interfaces, if you go from a browser-based system to a multiple interface system, you have to completely gut and re-engineer most of your, most of your code. So we, to get technical, we had to get to go from kind of a, a single layer design to an interior design and a services oriented architecture. 
and ultimately build everything to API so that we could surface our functionality on any device. That has been the, the vast majority of the effort. If you look at the MindBody app and you go search for a yoga class in Portland, and it gives you that mashed up list or it drops all those dots on the map, and then you can tap on those and instantly get to the real-time schedules. That's sitting on the tip of a giant stack of data, of business logic, of APIs, and that was a hefty undertaking. It's now that mobile development is now the majority of our product development budget. That's crazy. So maybe to put things in perspective, how many companies were you servicing at that time back in like 2010, 2011? That one I can remember because we have, we have T-shirts that several of us have that say on 10, 10, 10, we had 10,000 clients. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, so the business was, uh, was officially formed in my garage on a 10101. And on 10, 10, 10, we got to 10,000. Wow. And this is no baloney. On 11, 11, 11, um, we got to 15,000. So it, uh, it, was, it was growing very, very fast, kind of a hockey stick type scenario back then. Wow. And so how long did this undertaking take then to get that first mobile solution in place? It sounds like a massive undertaking that's obviously probably still going and still putting pieces in place. Boy, the first MVP... Um, which we call biz mode. We, we got better at our naming conventions later. <laughs> I think it took about a year for the, but it was a, you know, a thin set of functionality. And we're right. talking about business space and B2B mobile application. The first consumer mobile app was the precursor to the MindBody app you see today. It was rolled out in 2014. It was called MindBody Connect. Got it. I think I actually experienced that right when it came out. Cool. You're one of our early adopters. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's my job, right? I'm in mobile. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, so now that you have these systems in place and you said that the biggest thing that you're focusing on is this customer experience and because you have, you're integrated with so many businesses and you're really just that, you're the foundation to most of these businesses, what sort of things are you doing to allow you to customize this experience and, and learn from these users to make these changes to the customer experience? Well, we're continuously studying our customers and interacting with them. There's automated techniques that are going on that, that track the analytics on both the web and mobile interfaces. Mm-hmm. What screens are being used? How are they being used? Usability studies, A-B testing, prototyping. We really drank the Kool-Aid in, in UX-centered design in 2013 and went from engineers, you know, kind of dreaming up how to, how to design screens and workflows to actually understanding that they're probably not the right people to do that. And that was a, a, a seminal change. And at the same time, we adopted a, a true agile development model with scrum teams and uh, in two-week sprints from what was previously a, a waterfall model. And we kind of went through a, a, a change. Those two cultural changes and, and methodology changes were huge in the product development team. So what prompted that? Utter crisis. Like all great changes, it's usually a crisis. Uh, and so the cri- there were two crises happening. The first was we realized that, that our usability were, left a lot to be desired. That what's happening is the rising tide of expectations of usability. And you can trace it back to that moment when Steve Jobs held the first iPhone up at that Macworld conference in, in June of 2007. That caused 
a rapid acceleration of all of our expectations on the fact that a product could actually anticipate what we want before we want it. And those of us that are old enough can remember what it used to be like to program your VCR. You know, it was so freaking complicated and the light was blinking at you. So you finally just, in frustration, most people just put a piece of black tape over the blinking lights because you couldn't figure out how to set the clock on the thing, much less actually program to record uh, friends, you know? So we went from that in, you know, seven years to a device that was incredibly easy to make calls, browse the web, join two calls. If you remember like earlier phones, if you were like trying to conference in someone else on your, on a call, you were going to bat about, you know, about 200 on whether you'd actually pull it off. And it would be like this incredibly strenuous. Now iPhone, you just like, you look at the screen, and you instantly see the arrows coming together and you tap it. So the reason I'm talking about all that is because that instantly reset all of our expectations on what we could imagine software doing for us. So the software that was magical in 05, I mean, that was a breakthrough product, mind-boggling line, was good enough in 07, and by 09, was really starting to look clunky. And by 2011, we're starting to get serious feedback, and we have emerging competitors. Of course we do, you know, people saying, hey, we can do it better than mind-body. That was a wake-up call. So... That's on the user experience side. And also, I, I would add in later on, a few years later, design thinking. The second piece, as far as going from waterfall to agile, was that we were building more and more and more functionality in the software. And the releases, build times are getting longer and longer and longer until ultimately there was release 57 of our software. Excuse me, R58, release 58 of our software which was a complete disaster. It took like three months longer than we thought to finally get it out. We released it. Our entire system became unstable and we had to roll it all back. Mm. And that was the moment we realized that the way that we've been doing things up to that point was not going to get us where we needed to go. And we all got religion on, on Agile Scrum. Interesting. This is really fascinating. I just want to reiterate a couple of things you said because I think it's absolutely worth noting. Back in 2013, this user-centered design but shift in mentality was really a catalyst for you guys. And I almost want to dig into that a little bit more, this cultural shift that took place. How did you facilitate that change in, a, in your organization of that size where it needed to happen, but the actual making of that happen? Can you maybe describe that process and, and what you did to implement that? Well, we had some really savvy investors and our uh, investors from Bessemer Venture Partners, the, the lead partner was Jeremy Levine, is still Jeremy Levine. In fact, he's still on my, our board of directors. He's associated with Sarah Tavel. And Sarah Tavel later on went on to Pinterest, uh, operating role there. And now she's left there and gone back to the private equity world. But Sarah was the first person, and she had such a, an impactful, but yet gen- gentle yet impactful way of telling me, we are so proud to be invested in your company. You guys are doing great things. And your baby's ugly. <laughs> and then connect us to some key people. And the first person that she connected us to was Jared Spool. Jared Spool has a, is a consultant who speaks uh, at lectures at usability and design conferences. His organization is User Interface Engineering, UIE. So anybody, everyone has needs to make that cultural change. I highly recommend Jared. Jared took us on as a customer. And we brought him into the organization and he taught us how to think in this way. Simultaneously, 
we sent ourselves to school uh, to learn to be scrum masters and product owners and uh, understand the different stakeholders in an agile scrum. So we just went all in. Like we do everything here. We just like, let's just go for it. You know, starting it you know, from me to our CTO to our senior engineers, our QA people, we adopted it. And it was really delightful because it centers itself. First of all, it's very democratizing. It gives a lot of empowerment to the people that are actually coding the software. It separates the product management which is or product ownership, which is representing the customer from the process of actually building the code. It's not without its issues, and we've evolved and iterated on it many times through the years. If we hadn't made the change, you know, we wouldn't be here right. We wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So it started with the organizational awareness, understanding that change needed to happen, and then the willingness to make these changes and drive it. And then you surrounded yourself with the people, and you, you sought the education that allowed you to understand how to make the correct change. And then from that point, did you then run internal workshops with Jared? Did Jared run internal workshops? Or what, what was that process like that got everyone on board to then executing the plan? He did. Yeah, yeah. He, we brought him in for multiple engagements. He took teams from our product development team and, and on to customer site visits in San Francisco and down in Los Angeles and uh, taught us a methodology in which the one thing you never do is ask the customer, the user, what is it you'd like to see this software do? Which was the only thing we were asking them before. And that was the one thing we can never ask them. Instead, what you do is observational research. And you simply watch them. You talk to them about their jobs. You observe the fact that this front desk staff is answering phone calls while she's multitasking and opening up a sketch pad to write notes on her on the iMac while she's got our software in a, in a reduced window and she's toggling between the two. And that's where you gain your insights. And, you know, it aligns perfectly with design thinking because design thinking starts out with radical empathy for the customer, for the user. Too interesting. Yeah, it's the way to do it. I mean, I'll just say this, is that whatever you do in your business, the most important thing, that, that will resent you every time is to put yourself back into the mind and heart and soul of your customer. And when you do that, and when you teach your team to do that, that's when the, the right things happen. A senior executive at a very well-known, uh, senior technology executive at a very well-known Bay Area SaaS company said to me, when your engineers lose contact with the customer, the code becomes the customer. And Wow, like there was like this like flat palm to forehead moment where you had engineers that instead of really thinking about what the experience was, the user experience was, they were thinking about the code. They're looking at the code and the code always looks messy. And by the way, any code that anybody else created never looks right to them. And what the first thing they want to do when you ask them to go modify an area of the software is re-engineer it. You know, can I just clean up this room first before I... Uh, move this additional bed in the room. <laughs> and so you could just get buried in continuously re-engineering the back end to no benefit to the customer. And Agile Scrum says that every sprint must deliver an improvement to the customer. And it says that every project should start first with radical empathy for what the customer really needs. And when you Rather than, you know, pushing on engineers to force them to think that way, you simply get the engineers out there into the wild 
in meeting customers and they'll solve the problems on their that they they want to do things that they start now wanting to, to serve the customer rather than serve the code i love that radical empathy putting yourself in the mind heart and soul of the customer that's yeah. great it's great and so rick where you're currently at and how fast you're growing and, and how connected you are with technology and knowing how it's going to enable and support your customers. What are you anticipating the future of mind, body and tailing considering these advancements of digital? Our objective has been from the very beginning has been a platform that connects the businesses to greater audiences of, of their customers to the consumer. So we see ourselves as a B2B and a B2C strategy. And what's happening now is that we're, because of the depth of our technology and the size of our platform, and just a few uh, brief numbers, we have 60,000 businesses employing 329,000 practitioners in over 100 countries using our software. And they're transacting about $10 billion a year on our system. So every single day, there are 4 million class and appointment sessions offered on our system. So to be really clear, if there's a, a yoga class that has 30 spaces in it, that would count as 30 sessions offered on that day. So it's about $4 million a day. On any given day, more than half of them are spoiling unused. Meanwhile, there are millions of people who would love to get into those classes but probably can't afford the full price. So the solution to that is to match supply and demand with dynamic pricing. And this is something that was, of course, we can all recognize it in the travel industry. When you're booking an airline flight or in the hotel industry, you're booking that hotel. We all understand now implicitly that the pricing is dynamic. It depends on when, it depends on the level of demand on those days. If you are more flexible in your schedule, then you can probably get that travel in that room for less cost. And if you're less flexible, you're probably going to pay more. Well, we have to remember that didn't always exist. In fact, it basically didn't exist at all 20 years ago. So that is what we are going to do in the wellness industry. These businesses generally have static pricing. You can get imputed discounts by buying a multi-session pass. You know, a 10-class pass, for example, on a per-session basis is cheaper than a single class, but you agree to an expiration. So if you don't use those 10 classes within, within, let's say, 60 days, for example, then they expire. And there's also memberships where what these businesses want to do is create a loyal following and create their own recurring revenue. And that works really well for those who want to really go deep into one particular practice. And of course, they benefit from, from being a member. But uh, there's a lot of people that would just like to get to be able to pick from a discounted pricing menu. And so if I, for example, were able to ask Siri, what's available this evening? Are there any uh, classes available this evening for less than $10 in my community? Because I want to go get a workout or I want to go do yoga. Well, Siri can answer that question. And so Google is something where we, we plan to take dynamic pricing and surface it through Google. We plan to surface it through the MindBody app and through uh, the branded mobile apps we do, which allow the businesses to actually get you to download their own app. You know, it's their own Walden Garden. Mm -hmm. So this is going to be a major focus for us over the next couple of years. That's awesome. So if we wanted to 
keep tabs on some of these advancements of the product and, and the uh, improved experience and features, where should we go to keep tabs? If you download the MindBody app, that's always our lead product. That's our marquee product where generally the newest things happening are going to be surfacing on that app first. Got it. And follow us on Twitter, you know. <laughs> As a public company, you know, we, we're required to announce certain things uh, publicly, press releases and the like. But of course, we like to, we'll tell people what's going on uh, on our blogs and, and on Twitter. Great. And I'll link to all this on our show notes page uh, for this episode as well so that everyone can go and download the app if you don't already have it on your phone, as well as follow them on Twitter to see all these announcements that are taking place. And make sure to tune in this Friday. We're going to be talking with Rick to learn a little bit more about some of his valuable resources in our rapid fire round. So Rick, thanks again uh, for joining us and for sharing uh, the path of MindBody and for giving us some additional resources. We really appreciate it. It was a pleasure to have you on. It was a pleasure to do this. Nice to meet you, Jordan. Thank you. Absolutely. Hey, thank you for listening. Make sure to tune in this Friday for this week's guest resources from our rapid fire question round. And I'm always happy to be a resource in any way that I can. So visit emergemobilefirst.com to reach out to me directly or for additional insights, resources, and bonus tools that can help catapult your organization to the next level. Until next time, think mobile first. Mobile first.